Failure, mistakes, they are the route to success. If you see it that way, and then you continue to chase those things and pay attention to them and not be afraid of them, then you're at least giving yourself the chance to improve. It will still be difficult, but you probably will. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Now today we're chalking up for part two of my conversation with Mr. Dave McLeod, an interview that was so dang nutrient-dense we had to cut it up into two delicious meals. Now today we're exploring tactics, mental game, and what Dave's working on outside of his own climbing, and get ready for your palms to sweat a little bit as we explore some of Dave's scariest moments on rock, how he systematically expanded his comfort zone and dealt with the fear of falling, and what we can all do to level up our tactics and our mental game so that we can progress as climbers and also just have a more enjoyable experience on rock or on plastic. Now, if you haven't heard part one with Dave, I recommend scrolling back one episode and jumping into that one first, where we explore struggle, training, and nutrition. It's a banger episode, and this one definitely follows suit. It's also got some nice bonus content at the end per usual for patrons and subscribers. Y'all are gonna love that. All right, how about a quick update here on my training and climbing for those who care, and if you don't, just skip forward. But a few days ago, I got on my old nemesis, the Moonboard, for the first time in a long, long time. I was shooting a new YouTube video with Jordan Cannon that I'm super excited to share more about soon, but right now I'm kind of keeping it under wraps. But anyway, we were both wanting to top up our power a little bit, as we've both been spending a lot of time working on those long endurance routes out at the Red that we love so much. And I'm surprised here, but I didn't suck nearly as much as I thought that I would getting back on that moonboard. And I think probably what's been happening is that I've been spending a lot of time focusing on the boulder problem of my project. And I think maybe that's just been enough to keep that top end power in pretty good shape. And I was really happy to see that. I mean, I still struggled for sure, but my fingers felt really great on that moonboard. And honestly, one of the things that I know has been helping me to stay healthy and to recover faster as I've been training hard has been my regular intake of premium protein and supercharged collagen by our friends over at Fizzy Vantage. You guys know that I use both of those supplements every single day, the collagen before I train and then the protein afterwards for recovery. And I have never felt better. Even as I push my body harder than I ever have, I love this stuff. It's all science-backed. They got six new peer-reviewed studies published just in the last two years showing the effectiveness of collagen supplementation including studies that found improvement in the rate of force development. So that's like finger power, so what I was doing on the moon board. Greater tendon hypertrophy and stiffness, improved joint functionality, and improved muscle recovery. I'm going to link to those studies in the show notes if you want to nerd out over the science. And I think you can also just feel uh, the difference if you try it. You can score 15% off by entering code STRUGGLE15 at checkout over at fizzyvantage.com. I really do love this stuff. I think you will too. And this episode is also sponsored by the Kaya Climb app. And if you enjoy bouldering outdoors, which I'm sure you do, this is just the absolute best resource to add to your kit. They work with local experts to create digital guidebooks for more than 50 bouldering areas. I'm talking Bishop, Red Rock, Joe's, Squamish, Leavenworth, Rocky Mountain, and more being added all the time. I think they just added five while I was talking. I mean, they're just popping up 
constantly if you're following them on Instagram or if you have the app. And it's all just right there in your phone with GPS pinned boulders, beautiful photos, and accurate directions, even when you don't have a signal. That's pretty important, right? When you're out like in a bouldering area, you don't always have signal. This is going to get you where you're going. I don't know how they do it. It's like magic. No more wandering around the woods, wondering where that five-star rig is. Plus, my favorite feature, over 300,000 community uploaded beta videos for when you get shut down on a proj. And lastly, super cool, they're partnered with the Access Fund to help protect the areas that we all love to climb. You can hit that link in your show notes to download a free version of the Kaya Climb app, and it'll also give you 20% off the pro version, which has all the badass features. It's only like five bucks a month for all of those climbing areas. Check it out. I love what they're doing. And lastly, just a big thanks to all of you patrons and subscribers out there. If that's you, you not only get this episode ad-free, but you also get some banger bonus content with Dave. And if you're not a patron or subscriber, you can check all of that out for free right now. I'm going to tell you more about it at the end. But first, let's place ourselves a tiny RP and run it out 50 feet with Dave McLeod. Looking at tactics now, Dave, and I've got a few things I want to talk about, some things I've pulled from your books and from your climbs, but I'll open it up first if there's an area, and we can include technique in this as well, tactics and technique. It's a pretty broad bucket, but what comes to mind on any area specifically within there that you've struggled with? Um, I, I would say that the weakest aspect of my climbing has always been on-site climbing, and I've, I've struggled for many years to understand that because I, I do a lot of on-site climbing in recent years it's been mainly in winter climbing on mixed ground but in the past i did a lot of on-site trad climbing as well and and also sport climbing and i've always definitely found that I'm, I'm worse at it and i'm not really sure why i have this hypothesis which i'm not sure about which is that i think just the way my my mind works <laughs> i like to test and find out you know, test and see, but I don't really have a lot of confidence in my ideas about things from the get-go. I tend to be quite skeptical even of my own mind. So sometimes I feel like not super confident on sighting. Like I feel like I get to a, a crux and I look at the holds ahead and I just think, is it that way or is it that way? I don't really know. And sometimes I think a degree of almost arrogance can be quite useful in on-site climbing to just go, I can read it, I can just go through it. And then you just confidently attack the sequence quite intuitively. Um, but I feel like I'm always second guessing myself. And I think that's a massive advantage in, in red pointing, but it can be quite a disadvantage in on-sighting. But that's just an idea that I have. I don't really know if that's true or not. <laughs> well, well, is, is it something that you can practice or train how if you want to go out and, and an objective is to on-site mm -hmm. a certain grade or, or a certain number of routes in an area if you're going on a trip? Uh, this is something that I've been trying to work on myself as well. I've had some friends and coaches suggest that I would benefit from raising my on-site grade relative mm -hmm. to my red point grade. Is that something that you're training? Is it something that I can train? Yeah, I, th I think it is good. And, and actually, I've been, I've been doing that in the last month or two myself. I've just been coming back from a surgery. So I had a little spell out of climbing. And um, 
one of the things you have a, when you have a layoff, like you do lose a bit of confidence. And I, so I started thinking like I should just get back into easy on sighting and then just build back up through the grades. And I do think that on-site climbing has really helped me to regain confidence and fluidity in, in my climbing and the ability to just intuitively read sequences. So I think it is, I think it's a great benefit for any climber to do a proportion of on-sighting, even if their goal is, is mainly hard projects that they're going to work and try and do, then a degree of on-sighting is always good. But certainly if you want to maximize your potential in on-sighting, then you have to do huge volumes, like really a lot to, to, to see the patterns, you know, and, and look at sequences of holds and be able to piece it together very quickly. Because obviously the closer you get to the limit, the, the less the, the climbs are going to be forgiving of hesitation or mistakes and you just have to get it right faster and to be able to improvise. And, and, and also you'll never get any on-site perfect. So you have to be able to also train the psychological aspects so that when you're in the middle of a truck sequence and you suddenly realize you've missed the hold or you've, you're wrong-handed, that sometimes it's actually mid-move when you're actually mid-slap for the next hold out of the corner of your, your eye. You see, you suddenly realize you're doing it wrong, but you have to just be able to go with it and either go with the sequence you've chosen or just readjust from moment to moment, like even within a second. So that there's no way around that. You have to practice it. I like that. I, I like the stakes of the on-site where you only get one shot to do it. It certainly is as mental as it is physical. And we'll I'll bookmark part of this because I've got a rich mental game chapter to bring up with you with regard to mm -hmm. some of the very mentally challenging objectives that you've taken on. But I do like that concept of pushing myself into doing more challenging on-sites. And this brings up a point from 9 out of 10 that you had written about with regard to goal setting. And I'm going to, I'm going to quote you here so that I can get your take on what this is. You said, what adults gain in knowing how to discipline themselves and focus on both immediate and longer term tasks, they lose in fear of failure. They become all sensitive that strangers on the climbing wall, their mates or coach will see them wobble, flail and fall without knowing they are doing it. They size up potential climbs to try based on likelihood of embarrassing themselves rather than anything else. And so mm -hmm. that could certainly come into play with me on wanting to try hard on an onsite and, and maybe not get it because it's a grade that I perceive as well within my ability to get or even choosing red point grades, maybe not pushing myself to the point where I'm not sure it'll go or not. Alex Magos spoke with me on this show about going through a phase himself where he, he felt he wasn't pushing himself to the point because he just didn't want to fail or all eyes would always be on him at a crag and that was always in the back of his head. So I can see that with pros, certainly where you're part of your identity and your ego are, are wrapped up in how you perform, but you're making this statement here with regard to, as you say, adults. So maybe not so much for does this impact kids, but I'd like to get your thoughts on this and how it might be something that we work on and if it's something that you've worked on. Yeah, I think uh, adults just keep, need to keep forcing themselves into that situation where to challenge that tendency to be too used to having either expertise or the sense that they should have expertise and to have that kind of learner's mindset. I see that with my own daughter, my 12-year-old daughter, and she's still at that stage where 
she's learning everything and she's used she's not phased at all you never would never think twice about the idea of being able to half do something you know have a, a bit of, a degree of skill but it's far from mastery and to say i don't know how to do this or to ask a basic question to ask a silly question and i found myself like forcing trying to force myself to do that in climbing and i also found that i once i started to have that mindset where i thought i'm going to attack this anytime i feel like i'm nervous looking wrong or looking bad or looking like i don't have skills i should do i'm gonna i'm gonna attack it rather than hide from it and i found myself doing it in other situations and i remember doing it when i went back to university to study nutrition and i just forced myself to just keep asking questions of my lecturers and i would ask the silliest questions like the, the questions that i thought i bet there are other people who have the same question but are, but are too afraid to ask <laughs> and I would just go right ahead and it did make me feel better and it did also help me to have a clearer idea of you know, of basic skills an under understanding of, of the skills I was trying to learn um, and also where, where my limits lay and where there's areas where I, I could genuinely improve because I think anytime you distort your own idea of what you're good at or bad at in, in any aspect of sport then, you know, you're obscuring your potential for homing in on your weaknesses and your opportunities for learning. So I think just, it's, to me, it's just like being brutally, brutally honest with yourself. If there's, an, if there's a chance for me to expose my weaknesses, then that's an opportunity. And, and actually, I, I think that is the, that ought to be the mark of a professional athlete is a, a constant willingness to to look for the places where they are wrong or they are lacking or they have and um, you know they're not up to the standard that they could be and if they're willing to be open to that then th then they, they're setting themselves up to then be the best that they can be i really love that openness that curious process mindset uh, but also there's some exposure therapy in that as well essentially the more we're willing to admit that we don't know something or that we aren't sure about something or just try things and, and be okay failing, whether it's at the gym or at the crag or just in the car on the way to the crag with friends, I think that then it gets easier. And that yeah. kind of brings up a little bit of a point that I heard you talk about, I think this was in your lexicon video where you had spoken about how you were the third person to send that incredibly sketchy very challenging E11 or E10 or whatever it'll end up being, but that you were the youngest of the three who had done that and that you felt that mm -hmm. it was a waste of time for us to limit our goals as we're getting older and blame things on age. I'd love to hear a little bit more of your perspective on that. And I just recently spoke with Chris Sharma and at 42, he climbed the hardest route he's ever climbed with uh, 15C Sleeping Lion. And so I'm curious, you know, what is it that Chris Sharma is doing right in order to keep pushing himself into his 40s that maybe somebody like myself or others who are listening could embrace as we don't have to write off our best years, you know, yet to come? Hmm. I reckon what all of these people have in common who are doing well, like sort of later than some others in, in their life, I think what they have in common is just they are just so passionate about 
finding their limits and, and actually just doing the activity of, of forward climbing, that it overcomes all of those other barriers that age presents, whether that's like I listened to your podcast with with Chris the other the other day, and, and he spoke a lot about family life and and business. You know, potentially getting in the way of of the focus on hard climbing, and I can relate to that exactly myself. Um, but if if you, the fire is so strong <laughs> that it's you need to do as much as you possibly can, turn over every stone to make sure that you can still achieve what you want to achieve, then you'll probably do it. I think what it's not like that's what I was trying to get at in that video was like it's not age itself, it's the things that come along with age. And so one of the things that come along with age is to is to, to actually almost give up and say, Well, you know, it's too late. And this for me, for whatever reason, whether that's because of physical aspects or complicate you know, your life being busy and complicated and full, that you no longer have the opportunity. And I just think the minute you think that, then it does start to become a foregone conclusion. Um, whereas I think what these really driven climbers have in common is that they just have so much fire that they may still, they will still think all of those things. I do as well, but it doesn't mean that you just sit back. You still just keep attacking the problems to be like, right, I've got this busy schedule. How can I fit in the training? How can I simplify the schedule and the training to make it work time-wise? You know, I have these injuries. How can I work around them? How can I adapt my training and fight hard to actually recover from the injury and then get back to the training? You know, all, all of these aspects. And we were just talking a moment ago about more of the, the, the mindset of continuing to learn. And that is actually, you see that talked about in the neuroscience circles about that actually being a model of why the brain actually does age is precisely because we stop trying to challenge it so much and having that sort of learner's mindset of being open to learning and making mistakes. So if you orientate yourself with learning to think that mistakes are the opportunity to learn, then they no longer seem so bad. Fail, failure, mistakes, all these things are your, they are the route to success. If you see it that way and then you continue to to chase those things and pay attention to them and not be afraid of them, then you're at least giving yourself the chance to improve. It will still be difficult, but you probably will. <laughs> is that in your estimation and through the climbers that you know and the community that you're in, is it a, a mental block to achieving higher and higher goals and, and successes in the sport as we age more so than a physical block. Is there any indication that you have seen from your friends or any data or climbing that there's a point at which we hit a physical drop off where we can no longer mm -hmm. expect to progress? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, your response to training for, from, for all sorts of reasons will, will increase, then plateau, and then it will start to decline. But the thing about Climbing, especially any sport, but especially climbing. Climbing has a very broad range of attributes that you need physical strength in the body, physical strength in the fingers with all the different grip types. And then you've got mobility and flexibility. And then you've got the whole massive area of movement technique. Then you've got tactics. Then you've got arrangement of the training. Then you've got avoidance of injury, management of injury, nutrition, recovery, all those layers. I mean, it's just. There's such a broad suite of things to optimize and nobody 
has optimised them all. Nobody is even close to optimising them all. Even Chris Sharma, even Alex Megos, even Adam Wondra. They still have quite big gaps that could be found. They're very difficult to spot. And But if you keep chasing them, then you might still have a little insight that allows you to go, ah, there's a little mistake. You know, I've got all these aspects of the game right. And then you find this other little mistake that, that maybe gives you a little boost and you sort of plug that into the mix. And then even if you're at your true potential and everyone's potential is going to be a very high grade. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be high. And so even if you have actually achieved that and you're, let's say your finger strengths in your 40s or 50s or 60s is starting to decline, you still have all those other areas that you can optimize. And so you, you may be declining in some areas, but still offsetting that in others. So the summation of all those factors together can still be going up. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, those all sound good. I mean, I, I'm 45 and I think there's nothing that I've claimed before in my previous 20, 25 years that I couldn't claim now. And uh, even if I don't get better at climbing, then I'm still pleased that I, you know, in the past year I've done Scottish 12 and mixed 48B plus and E11 trad. That's the first time I've ever been able to do that in one year. Um, so that's crazy. I, I, I think that's, that's, really, that's really good. And that's at the same time as having a surgery and quite a few different upper body injuries as well, like shoulders and shoulders, elbows and fingers have all been injured in the past year. So it's amazing how you can work around so much. And I've taken influence from many mentors. Like there's a, a very well-known winter climber in Scotland. He's no longer with us, sadly, a guy called Andy Nisbet. He died in a climbing accident, unfortunately, a couple of winters ago. And I think he was about 60 or 61. And he was doing hard routes back in the late 70s and early 80s and had some accidents and some, some quite serious accidents where he really messed himself up badly and significant surgeries, you know, like new hip. I think he, he got two new hips and then wore out his new hips and got them replaced and then <laughs> kept going. Yeah. Yes. So he had all these problems and when you actually saw him walking into the mountains, he looked a bit broken, but then he would just get his gear out and just go up the route nonetheless. And, and he really showed me like how you can work around some pretty major problems. I, and he didn't train, so he was definitely getting weaker and yet he could still climb very well. So it just show, showed me that like how, what was possible. And I remember actually going to a talk by someone who had been on a mountaineering expedition with him in the early 1980s. And they were saying that at that time, they, they, they thought Andy was pretty messed up. Like he looked so broken, kind of getting out of his tent in the morning and he was had all these aches and pains and he was very stiff. And that was in the 80s. And then in 2020, he was still going for it, doing, you know, doing like nearly a, about, I think he did 80 new mixed routes in a season. I mean, I've never oh climbed anywhere close to 80 mixed routes in a season. So, yeah, it, it kind of, it, it does, it, it, that sort of thing makes you think like, yeah. If you, it, but what he had and what all these people had is fire. I, I mean, I remember Andy when he was like, he was sick. He had a virus and he was really quite sick. But he was just getting really depressed because he couldn't climb. So he was just going out climbing, even though he was ill. He just needed to climb. 
And to me, that's the common thing with all these people is like the burning fire to climb and to push hard. And so that's to me, it's the, the bottom layer of, of training is finding that passion for it. Uh, if it, maybe it's not there and that's totally fine, you know, just climbing for a bit more lighthearted enjoyment. That's, I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all, but if you want to improve and have sustained improvement, then there needs to be a sort of fire behind it. And that's what fuels all the problem solving that you're going to have to do every day for the rest of your climbing career. Yeah, it brings to mind a lot of the athletes that I've had the, the honor of talking to on this show, but in particular, Tommy Caldwell and Peter Croft and uh, well, there's there's too many to name. Certainly Chris Sharma most recently, and he spoke about that. Uh, in fact, when I asked him, hey, who do you think out there it could be the most likely to climb 516? You know, I was asking him to essentially say, you know, who's the new guard coming up? Who are you going to pass the torch to? And he included himself in it. You know, he's 42 years old and hell yeah, maybe he will be the one to push the next grade. He certainly isn't ready to hand that baton over. And so having that that constant drive, that fire, that curiosity, uh, I think for even climbers like myself, who can just get out on a weekend in between kid events and, and soccer practice and these kinds of things is what will hopefully lead me to continual improvement as well. So thank you. I really appreciate the perspective. I want to talk tactically about some of the toughest routes that you've worked on and some interesting, if not downright, maybe to the outsider, crazy seeming tactics that you've implemented for that. Thinking about Echo Wall here specifically and how you decided that it would be to your advantage to go out and solo some really hard routes. One of them being mm. one of the hardest free solos in all of rock climbing history that we know of, which is the 8B plus or 14A slash B. Darwin digs it, I think is what it was called, right? In Margalef. And mm -hmm. yeah, tactically, I'm interested in your thought process around knowing that you were going to take on a very hard and, and exposed climb to then go do a very hard and exposed climb in order to prepare for that. Walk me through that mm. thought process from a tactical lens with mm. regard to taking on Echo Wall. Yeah, well, I mean, that that was like a, th that was a very specific training challenge, if you like, where it, there was, I had a sort of mindset problem that I had to overcome, which was that my project Echo Wall, my project at the time on the Nevis, I, I kind of had this rough idea that it may be about 8C, that, 14b sort of standard climbing and the protection there is protection here and there there's a there's a couple of runners on the pitch that are you know more than body weight there's one good brass rp but you, you just have to go such a long way beyond it that the place where you would fall right at the end of the pitch when you're tired you're going to hit the ground so it's one of those routes where it's not a solo but it's not far off it you know so, I had, I felt I'm basically soloing 8C, but the, just the idea of the grade was so high, like, you know, no one had soloed 8C. So, so essentially, like, when I sort of was going through this in my mind, you're thinking, well, no one soloed 8C. Am I really the person who's going to do the first equivalent solo of an 8C? Am I really right. up to that? It was like a mindset thing. So I felt I have to solo an 8C, but I'd rather not do it with all the other things that go with a mountain trad route. Like with that project Echo Wall, one of the big challenges is actually getting the route in condition. 
it's quite wet a lot of the time on Ben Nevis. There's a small window of condition. Sometimes you just, in some summers, you just wouldn't catch it. Or some summers, it might be in condition for a handful of days. And so you've got to have that. For a route like that, you really have to feel like you're a bit better than the route so that when you get your opportunity, you're good enough to do it and still have the margin because you don't really want to be right on the limit. It's just too dangerous. So that was part of it. I thought, well, if I go on a sport climbing trip and I'm going sport climbing to get fit and strong and also enjoy myself, then I could get that kind of thing out of the way and like work in 8C and then if it was a suitable one, then I would solo it. I mean, to, it slightly overstates it to say it's one of the hardest solos because it's a short route. I mean, it's still bold, like it's still like it goes out above the road. So you still definitely can fall from the upper half. Yeah, it would be the end of your climbing career at that minimum if you fell from the upper part. The crux lower down, yes, yeah, it's on the cusp of getting away with it or not getting away with it. But it was more, that was more of a, a training exercise, just the mindset of that grade plus solo didn't really go together. And doing that one little climb in Spain, it made it fit and it just was a kind of mental block I could put behind me and then I could move on with a, with a kind of clearer head to what I needed to on the actual route of the wall. So how, how often had you climbed that one in Spain prior to soloing it and how long did you climb Echo Wall on rope, top rope, prior to swimming mm. it. So yeah, that route Darwin Diggs, I think I'd done it on a previous trip. I'd red pointed it and it was pretty hard for me at the time. I think it, it took me a couple of days to do. And then when I came back, in the, that was the spring of 2008, with the idea in the back of my mind that maybe that would be a good candidate to solo, I went, I went up at resting on the box. And then I think I pretty much red pointed it next go. And then I think I maybe did it another once, maybe twice, took a rest day and then just came back in the morning and just, I, I did a small warm up and then just sold it. It's pretty intense to watch the video, which you've got up on your YouTube. There's some real dynamic movement through the crux. I mean, feet cutting moves to, yeah. I mean, at least one was a decent jug that you kind of matched on your wrist. And then yeah. it looks like you pulled into some pretty shallow pockets and some monos, maybe a strength of yours considering the three-finger drag and how you've worked that grip so often. But can you talk me through maybe the crux sequence of that route and what you needed to do in order to execute, maybe what was going through your head as well? Yeah, well, it starts up this more or less a roof and it's on pretty positive holds. They're not, they're like finger jugs, what we call finger jugs, you know, but they're, they're pretty good holds. Not what I call them. But then you get to the lip of the roof and you do have to take this kind of cut onto one hand and it's quite powerful. It's on a good hold and there's nothing to match. You know, that's ended up like sort of grabbing my wrist to stop the swing because you're just hanging on one hand. Um, and then once you get your feet back on, you go up to this mono and then the crux move is just like locking down on this mono. And it's a funny hold, like when you red point, when I had red pointed the route, I think I failed on the crux once because when you take the mono, but if, you, if your finger's not in it just the right way, it kind of twists your finger and it feels very painful. And I remember pulling up, locking off and going, oh no, take, 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 that doesn't feel right. Um, but then the next try, you know, if you seat your finger correctly, then it feels okay. So that, that move did feel quite committing for the solo. Uh, so I was, but to be honest, with a solo, all the hard stuff has to happen before you leave the ground in the deciding whether you're really ready to solo it, whether you really have a margin. And I was just like, at that time, 
again, going back to what I was saying earlier about simplifying my life, I just moved house to the Highlands of Scotland, just near Ben Nevis, to at the bottom of the mountain where I was trying this project. I was really doing a lot of consistent climbing, and I had a good spell with no injuries, and I was just very, I was just very fit, and I was quite confident. I, I was doing a lot of bull trad all the time, and I remember going up the route and just thinking, yeah. I, I can do this and it wasn't a big deal and that's exactly what you want. So the whole process, I was kind of monitoring that in my mind that, but so it was like before and after the soul itself, I was like looking, listening to my own mind, thinking, how is this feeling? And it felt like it just wasn't a big deal. And that's what made it all, that's what made it feel right to solo the route in Spain. And that also then set me up to do Echo Wall because it was like, I. I was thinking, I I listen to my own mind. I predict it's going to be fine, and then it's fine, and it's going to be the same on Ben Nevis, <laughs> and it was. I mean, it's absolutely madness to when you just kind of at a glance look at it. But that echoes conversations that I've had with Alex Honnold and Peter Croft and some others on the show, where ultimately you get to the point where it is no big deal. In in fact, the kind of Alex's nickname is no big deal to the point where he's made so many things no big deal. So that's exactly the place I'm assuming where you want to be internally. Externally, with regard to fitness uh, and tactics that were required for Echo Wall, which is your hardest route, right? Your your hardest trad climb. I mean, you never gave it a grade. I don't know. Where, where has this landed? Like, it's it's it, was it harder than Lexicon? Was it harder than Rhapsody? You're not going to say, are you? It's definitely harder than Lexicon. It was harder than Rhapsody for me, but one of the problems with grading really bold routes like that, you know, where there's like, you're doing a 50 meter pitch and there's a couple of good runners, but that's it. It's like, you're thinking, okay, a good micro wire three, it's, it takes four kilonewtons before it breaks, you know? So if I take a hundred foot fall into that, it's a good placement. I don't think the placement will come out, but will the nuts snap? Like if you think it won't snap, it'll be fine. Then it's fine. But if it, if you think it does snap, it's a different grade. So it's right. a hard one to predict. Bold routes like that are always more difficult to grade. Someone who is maybe 18 years old and they haven't quite developed their prefrontal cortex and, you know, they, they just have that young man boldness where they're like, yeah, it's fine. There's a runner. They right. might find it quite straightforward. Yeah. Whereas someone that a little bit older might be like, well, no, that nut's probably going to break. So you're probably soloing and then it probably deserves a high grade. So yeah, to, to me, right. it felt like an E11. To me, it felt like an E11, but I would probably grade the E10 because I think it's probably a, a young man's route. And for a young man who doesn't know any better, they probably think it's fine. <laughs> right. Well, well, we'll have to. Uh, Tom Randall and some friends put together the E grader. We'll put it in there and see. I, I think it's going to come out to V twenty one and five seventeen <laughs> based on based on that how that Plato factoring worked. The, the other thing about that route and, and trad grading in general is that the crux of Echo Wall is near the gear, but the bit that's dangerous is easier climbing. It's where you're pumped and you're tired, and it's where I right. would fall. But eh. But maybe some climbers who had better endurance than me, maybe I think if Steve McClure tried it, I don't think he would have any worries at the end, the last wee bit where that's where I was worried you're going to fall right at the very end and take this massive winger onto this one little nut that's probably going to snap. But if you were really fit 
and you could recover really well at the rest, you may just think that last bit is not too bad. You know, I don't know, probably like V6 or something like that. And it, does, it doesn't sound too bad. So that's the tricky thing with, with trad grading is you have to kind of know a bit more of the intricacies of the route to have an idea. Sure. And, and I didn't mean to take us down a rabbit hole on, on grading. I, I'm more interested in kind of how you took your fitness and your preparation tactically to uh, Echo Wall, which, you know, was, uh, to your point, you, you know, your most challenging mm-hmm. climb if you stack them up uh, against what you've done. And mental game aside, because we're going to move into that chapter in just a second, when you went into that climb, I'm not going to be climbing that style, but I'll be climbing the hardest thing I'm trying to climb this fall. How did you tactically carve up Echo Wall so that you felt when you were ready to pull on and give it that red point go, um, while that's much higher stakes than I'm going to experience on mine, I'm still going to be trying to do the hardest thing I can do this fall. And so what did you Mm -hmm. feel tactically worked for you on that, or maybe just in general uh, with how you look at a limit climb? Mm. Yeah, it's like it's like layer by layer. So the, the the first layer was just the individual moves, working out the very best sequence. And I did spend a lot of time, you know, just that's where the, one of the aspects I enjoy most about climbing, and that's what's allowed me to climb hard red points across the grades for my level of strength. Because I would just the whole day would go past. I'd be like nine hours on the rope. Just like trying moves, trying moves, trying it this way, trying it that way. Countless options until I, I really had it dialed. So I kind of knew I had the very best sequence. And then when I was trying to link sections, you know, when you link a longer section, a move will emerge that wasn't that bad on its own. But when you try and link through, you realize, oh, there's this one move that just feels like I could fall there. And so you go back to that one move and you think, is there anything else I can work out with that move to make it even easier or more solid? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be that you do it a way that actually feels harder on its own, but it's more consistent. You know, maybe a bit more powerful, but you hit the hole each time and you, you can do it. So it's all going back to those little intricacies. So sometimes you go back in the process in order to go forward. And then when I was getting close to linking it, it's like finding all of the most efficient positions with the rest, like the pacing. Like it's the you climb this little... 45 degree wall that's about 80 plus in itself, bouldery 80 plus. And I just went, it was like one movement. It was just so quick and flowing. I could climb that bit very fast. But then you get to a knee bar rest and it's it was all about like kind of hang upside down off that knee bar. And it feels quite tenuous. And you feel like you want to have your whole body still quite tense because you actually feel like you're going to fall out of the knee bar, but you're trying to just relax more and more but just to the point where you're about to fall out of the knee bar. <laughs> right. And um, so when you're working it on the top rope, you're just fine tuning that the whole time. Like how relaxed can I get? How relaxed? And you're like, that's the spot, but that's where I want to be. And and also in your mind, you're thinking you're switching from that bouldery 80 plus bang, explosive, get through those moves and then get to the rest and then be like, relax, 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 relax. And then once you've got as much as you can out of the knee bar, it's like bang into the crux and you're kind of winding yourself up again. So you're kind of refining that that pacing of effort, like the like uh, meeting out all the all the effort through the pitch so that you manage your energy levels. That all leads up to that final crux at the end. 
and hopefully you've got the maximum amount of energy left over and you want to get to the rest before that and just feel you don't have that really deep pump in your forearms where you feel like it could go wrong because the, the little crux at the end there you have to take this little two finger crimp and it's a quite a small hold and there's no way around it you have to do a big lock off it and sometimes if you're a bit pumped you'd get midway through the move and your fingers would just open and so that's the bit where I was most worried about but you want to there's a key moment where you cross through, you take that crimp and then you just roll out of the cross through. And that's like the decision point where if you wanted to back off, you could retreat from that position to the rest and then you could get a bailout from there. But if as soon as you roll out of that cross through and, and move your left hand, it's do or die, you know? So it's not, you're like reading when you're working burns on the top rope, you're like reading how you feel how pumped was I when I fell there? How pumped was I when I didn't fall there? Where's the line? And then you kind of know where that line is. And then when you're confident, you know all of those details, then you just add that little bit of fitness on top of what you've hopefully already been building and building. And you just refine everything, taper, and then hopefully that times with the good conditions. And that was like on the day I actually did it. It was the hottest day of the year that, that year. And it was a bit warm during the day. But then at night, it was about 9 p.m. and there's big snowfields above Echo Wall, you know, and just the catabatic wind at 9 p.m. started to roll down across the snowfields and past the route. And I just felt this cold air come and I could just feel the rock. And I, I was getting colder and I was just like waiting, waiting, waiting. And it was like, perfect, it's perfect now, go. And it was just like, it all coming together. All right, y'all, let's take a quick little breather here between chapters so that I can just say a quick hello and tell you how much I appreciate you. It's Thanksgiving for me here right now in Kentucky, and I am so thankful that you're here, that you're listening and that you're engaging on Instagram and YouTube and hopefully improving as a climber because of the content here that I'm working my butt off to produce each week. If you are enjoying it, there's two easy ways that you can help support me, one that costs money and one that does not. So first, the free one, you can rate and review this show on Apple or Spotify, and that really helps us to find new listeners. So if you think this is quality stuff, and I don't know why you would be listening if you didn't, but but if you do, would you just take a quick 30 seconds to pop over to wherever you listen and give me five stars or 10 stars or a thousand stars, whatever it is, and also maybe share it with your climbing buddies or on Instagram or something like that so that we can keep finding an audience. It costs nothing. And heck, I'll even send you a sticker if you do that. Just like hit me up on Instagram. Give me your address and I will send you a sticker. Now, the other way to support me here in the podcast slash utility closet, and this does cost a little bit of money, but if you have the means, I think it's worth it. And that's to become a member of The Struggle by joining up through Patreon or Apple subscriptions. For the price of like a fancy cup of coffee each month, you'll get access to more than 30 hours of exclusive content featuring the biggest names in the sport. We got pro clinics from the likes of Alex Johnson, Ravioli Biceps, Jordan Cannon, and Dr. Tyler Nelson, just to name a few. We've got bonus content with some up-and-coming climbers that you might have heard from, including Chris Sharma, Alex Honnold, Nina Williams, Dave McLeod, Mr. Dave McLeod, who we're currently talking to. And you're also going to get access to full uncut videos, coaching sessions with Tom Randall, exclusive deals, and all sorts of other cool perks. I'm working really hard over here to make it a good value. And right now, you can even try it at zero cost. That's totally free. If you just want to see if it's worth it, pop by patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show. 
to check it all out. I'm trying to make this my full-time gig, you guys, and climbers like you are making that dream a reality. So thank you so much. Now I will stop talking to you and we can get back to listening to Dave. Let's talk about mental game then, because this is a, a good transition. We're actually already into mental game, which is very nice, but let's continue where we left off in that tactics chapter. And I've got a couple things to, to zero in on specifically here from some of the things that you've written, but uh, I'll ask you first if having done some of the headiest head pointing around and soloing, mix climbing, you, you take on what are classically considered to be very mentally taxing climbs and styles. Is there an area in the mental game that you've struggled? I, I mean, I think I struggle with, uh, with fear of hitting the ground and hurting myself all the time. <laughs> I'm not a naturally, I'm not a naturally bold climber. Uh, so I was very cautious early on and still am. And I just have to fight against that all the time with all the tactics that I've talked about for years on, on, on the internet. So yeah, that's like a constant battle. And I'm going through it all over again right now, coming back from a surgery. Like I can't even, I can't even drop off on the top of my board. I might, actually might never be able to drop off on the top of my board. So actually the top of my board feels like soloing just now. And that's quite unsettling. So certainly like going out on setting on trad, when you're finding that when I'm like 20, 30 feet up and there's a bit of a rattly hold, yeah, I feel quite scared. And so it's sort of taking all my experience to be able to not only kind of push through that as much as you should do, because you have to be careful. Bold tri climbing is not about just ignoring fear. It's about um, ignoring irrational fear and paying attention to rational fear and then mitigating the danger via other tactics. So there's like an important distinction to, to be made there. I think like I do sometimes see it with young trad climbers and they just think, you know, doing hard trad is just about being scared and then just, I'll just go for it anyway. It's like, not that at all. It's been making sure that you know that you're not going to fall and hurt yourself, that you either have protection or you know you're not going to fall. Or, you know, if you climb up a move, you know you can climb down it. So it's all sure. those things. Right. So at the moment, I'm doing easy on sighting, going back to the grades. I started at E2 after my first route. When I came back from my surgery there was E2. And I've kind of gone back to E5 now after a few sessions. Just click climbing on site, but just going out and doing try on site and just being getting to grips with, oh, that hold feels a bit wobbly and I'm not super happy with that cam. Like, how far above it will I move? Can I down climb that section? All of these things. Yeah, I'm not sure which video it was that you did. It might have been Lexicon where you talk about these voices in your head that popped up and there's the rational fear and the irrational fear and they're both screaming at you and you get to the point where you have to tamp one down and keep going. For some people, it's hard to discern between rational and irrational fears and these kinds of things. You mentioned in, in 9 out of 10, once you get to the chapter on fear, and I'm not looking at it right now, but it's something like probably the thing that's holding you back. Essentially, you've gone through a handful of chapters where we're talking about finger strength and training and volume and campusing and should you or shouldn't you or whatever. And then you get to the section where it's like, but hey, the real thing that's probably holding you back is this fear of falling, which for me for many years was in fact, no doubt the case because I had gone from trad climbing out west to very overhung sport climbing in the red. And I just wasn't accustomed to falling. I didn't fall all that much when we were 
climbing out west because I kind of had that old school 1970s leader mentality of, you know, what the, the leader shall not fall and these kinds of things. And so I just wasn't accustomed to falling and I had to familiarize myself with that for quite some time before I could start to move up through the grades. And, and a lot of your writing helped in that. So I'm curious now that you're almost revisiting a bit of that yourself, what have you found to be the best practices and that you found for other climbers as well when dealing with some of that fear of falling? Yeah, I, well, right now I'm going back to a training approach, if you like, that I started back when I was at Dumbarton Rock as a relative novice, where I just made a decision to do at least one thing that was just out of my comfort zone every single time that I climbed. It didn't need to be much or very sustained and overwhelming yourself is counterproductive very quickly. But it's just something so that I didn't get used to the feeling that of discomfort being something bad to be avoided. That was normal and I'd have to, I'd have to adapt to it. What is that for you? So like when I was doing it the first time round, I was doing a lot of high ball boulders that were really more than high balls, more like short solos where, you know, you're above a rocky landing and you're like, you know, 20 feet above a rocky landing. You can't really get away with falling. You're going to, you're going to break bones. So you go up to a high point and that's where you last came down. And then I would just try and go a move higher. But even if I couldn't go a move higher, just staying at the high point for longer. And then you would realize that when you reach the high point at first, you feel very nervous and tense and your vision is very narrowed and you can't see the holes around you and you feel very stressed. But then if you just stay there, I would find that after a couple of minutes, I would actually start to relax and be like, actually, I can stay here. I can be here for a few minutes and not having the same pressure that I need to start down climbing immediately. And then you realize, oh, I didn't see that hold and... Oh, the sequence starts to emerge in front of you and you can see the next move. And so sometimes the thing I would do to be out of my comfort zone would just be to stay at the high point for longer and then I would down climb and then I'd take a rest and then I'd go back up and then the next thing I would just reach and touch the next hold or maybe I would do the next move or you would just do as much as you could. You would just do something that was a, a little bit more than you really were comfortable with. But without actually putting yourself in real danger, I would never start sketching through a move, you know. That that would be when you're moving into error, where it becomes kind of productive. You sketch around, you will fall, <laughs> and then you hurt yourself, and then you'll lose all that confidence very quickly. So you have to be very careful not to exceed the limits of your skill level. And, you know, gradually I just became more and more resilient. But there's, this is a very long process so you need to be doing that little thing out of your comfort zone, not for a few weeks or a few months, but for years, thousands of routes just over and over again. So it's just a long process. And I think all bold card climbers are just doing this week in, week out as part of their normal their normal training, just in the same way as you would do moves on a moves on a climbing wall. You're you're letting your you're exposing yourself to that feeling of discomfort, like I'm a, I'm above that that runner. One of the best things that that happened to me was I, I was doing a lot of mixed climbing and ice climbing in the winter with a, a friend from university and he was like me. We were both at about the same grade when we started climbing together and he was like me in that he was quite a cautious leader. But you know when you're on a big mountaineering route and you're in a partnership, no one really likes to be the person to say, oh, this is getting a bit out of hand, shall we have say a loaf? 
you know, you always want the other person to say that even if you feel it. So there's a kind of way out of that. So if it's that person's lead and they actually don't want to lead the next pitch, they're intimidated or they're a bit scared, then instead of saying, shall we have say hello, they can say to you, do you want to lead? So it's not quite the, sa- the same as saying, do you want to have say hello? But then if you say, well, no, I don't want to lead either. Shall we just have say hello? Then you have say hello. But for me, I find that I was happy to abseil off routes and back off, but not without giving it a go first. I, and I just found that when I started into the lead, I would, I had enough experience from the thing I was talking about at the Barton to become lost in the lead and the fear would go away and I would just keep grinding out a few more moves, a few more moves, and then I would find myself at the top of the pitch. And I found that because of that, I ended up doing more and more of the leading until I was doing all the lead. And it was amazing, actually. Our grades just diverged. His stayed at the same level for the, the period we were at university. And I climbed four, four grades higher during that period. And by the end of it, I was a much more confident leader. But I, I actually started to hate seconding. I just associated all climbing with having the, the rope running down from a harness and not even being able to see the last runner. And just being out on the lead is just being part of of climbing it just it just became that's what climbing is being out there on the lead and that 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 was normal i think falling off is a it's a related but slightly different thing like being comfortable with the actual sensation of falling off again that just takes practice but just doing hard on sighting on sport climbing is a great way to do that you yeah, still that's... have to be cured there's pitfalls even in sport climbing because there's a technique to both leading and second and healing when you're sport climbing so you can destroy your confidence if you don't do it right. If you if your B layer gives you a, a hard catch, or if you if you fall and don't pay any attention to how you fall off, like staying in the right orientation and kind of bracing yourself for swinging in and things like that, then it can make it worse. And also, if people are very nervous about being a long way above a bolt, and they try to clip a bit early, and they pull up all the rope and then fall off, it can make it a lot worse. So right. sometimes you have to be careful that the lack of confidence can actually be, you know, it can actually build on itself because it can draw you into scenarios that make things worse. Yeah. So, yeah, assuming you've got a bit of care on how you fall off, then just like doing lots of on-sighting and taking falls is good. And eventually you have to do it on trad as well, which is potentially dangerous. You have to be sensible about uh, getting into leader fall situations on trads, you have to know that your gear's going to hold you <laughs> and it's backed up. I mean, I, I've certainly been in situations where runners that I thought would hold didn't hold. And I was like, wow, I'm glad I had another runner in. So you have to be pretty careful with that. But in order to really reach high levels of boldness and confidence, I do think it's needed at a certain point to actually take falls on trad. I am sufficiently gripped here, which I think is a great way for us to wrap up the mental game chapter and kind of move into our last chapter here, which is about you, about kind of beyond your own climbing, really things that you're passionate about and that you're working on. Obviously, you're writing a book, it sounds like, because you mentioned that earlier, but you're also putting out really high quality, thoughtful content on YouTube and on your website and on Instagram. There may be other things that I'm not aware of, 
or, or that you're working on and, and that you'd like to talk about. So what is it, Dave? What, what are you working on? What do we need to know and, and how can we check it out? Well, yeah, I have been writing a book about my own climbing, about my apprenticeship. So um, I, I did this route Rhapsody at the Morton Rock. That was the first D11 trad route in the world. And it's a long time ago in 2006. But it's funny, so almost immediately after doing that climb, that's when I started writing a blog. And at that time, there weren't that many climbers' blogs. And so mine actually became quite popular and a lot of people liked it. And that made me write more. And then that made me write a couple of books. So that it all sort of led on from that. But I've never really written that much about my climbing apprenticeship. And so I feel that there was there was influences and decisions that I made often by accident or, or things that I learned the hard way that were, ended up being really significant because it, I remember doing that route and like I was so focused on just trying it and doing it that I never really thought that much about how I would think after I'd done it because I never really thought I'd reached that stage. But I remember actually the night I did it sit, sitting back in the house and being like, this route's probably E11. I think I, I'm going to have to grade at E11. And thinking like, how did I get here? You know, like I wasn't even the best climber in my local climbing wall. So how did I, like in the past sort of six or seven years or so, overtake a lot of the people who were better than me at that style of climbing and end up, it was me doing, the person doing that really hard route. So I wanted to write a book that kind of, went through some of those influences. And I was talking a lot about the things that we, we have been in this podcast. I mean, uh, to me, the, the, the fundamental driver has been just curiosity. Curiosity about how how moves work, which I got from bouldering at Dumbarton Rock. And I mentioned before, I had this goal to climb all the climbs at, at the rock, which no one had done. And um, that, it, it gave me this uh, real reward of working out the intricacies of moves and just the nature of that rock type really, you could solve moves without power, <laughs> even if they seemed really tough. It was still powerful climbing in general, but there was so much you could get out of technique and little small differences. And so I started to realize anytime I was working something, I would never think, ah, oh, that's it, I've got the sequence. I'd always think there's, I bet there's something else I can uncover and there always would be, there always has been ever since. So that sort of was one aspect that I think developed a curiosity. And I always think of that, that's what technique learning is. It is just curiosity. It's wanting to understand. So that was like a, just one key drive of many that allowed me to kind of get better at climbing. So I've been writing about that. Um, and I have been doing a lot on YouTube. Um, yeah, pe people, Tell me that they enjoy the, the videos. Uh, so I'm definitely going to keep keep doing them. Uh, they're a lot of work. I haven't done one for a few weeks because I've been doing a book. Uh, sort of can't quite do both at the same time. It's a little bit too much. But I, I will definitely keep doing more video content because I quite I do enjoy that. And I like the mix of talking about the details of training and, and going into some deep dives into this like physiology and nutrition, all of these things, going really deep but then also bringing people back to just like being outside in the mountains and how nice that is. I think you just put out fantastic content on YouTube. I'm really grateful that you do. You make so much available at no cost for the climbing community as you have for many, many years now, decades now, from the blog and the website to now Instagram, your books, 
but which are fantastic. And now YouTube. I, I do love that mix that you just mentioned there of kind of more technique or training focused, very specific science-based content that I think is fantastic to then these, these adventures that you have just out oftentimes just yourself. And you'll even record with, I think, fantastic coverage. You'll be out doing a, a solo of something and you'll have all these angles and I'll be watching it and I'll think, oh my God, how does he have this crew out with him all the time? But that's not true. You're actually shooting this yourself, right? Like, how are you? Yeah. How are you getting these fantastic films of you? Uh, absolutely stunning settings out in just I'm assuming on the cliffs near your home there, without having even a single other person with you. I did try and film a couple of easy solos, and then I found it technically very challenging. Uh, but because it was challenging, I was like, I wonder if I can do it better. So I've done it a few times now, and every time it's been quite challenging and very stressful, even though I'm on very, very easy routes. So that's like setting up a few filming angles and flying, flying the drone or having the drone in the air and periodically moving it around. And it's been quite challenging. The, the, the one I did most recently on Ben Nevis, I keep saying this, that's the limit. I don't want to, <laughs> I wouldn't want to do any more. I think the worst that would happen hopefully is that I would just lose, lose the drone, but yeah, I don't know. It's challenging, but I I quite, I quite like it as well. It's great, great stuff for anybody who's listening, who hasn't subscribed to your YouTube channel, go do it immediately. It's some of the best content that's out there. If you want to level up your training, your climbing, or just be inspired to get out into the mountains, man, I'm so grateful. I've been, I mean, I, I'm a climber that I am today because of the content that you've put out. So I'm incredibly grateful to what you've provided, not just to me, but to the entire climbing community. And I'm also so psyched for your continual improvement, how you're pushing yourself in the sport and the content you're continuing to put out, your writing. Can't wait to see where you go next. I'd love to connect again sometime down the line, but thank you again for yeah. this very, very um, detailed, thoughtful, exciting uh, and open chat that you've had with me here today. No problem, it's been a pleasure. And that wraps up one of the most insightful combos that I have had on this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if, like me, you cannot get enough of Dave McLeod, the extended version of this episode offers up some really good bonus content, including a crazy story about the most scared that Dave has ever been on a climb, the two times, not one, but two times he almost died on route. And let's be honest, there's probably 25 more. Uh, how to identify our blind spots as climbers and what he would change if he were to rewrite nine out of 10 climbers today. He kind of calls it the missing chapter, if you will. That's all usually behind a paywall for patrons and subscribers. But right now you can access those amazing stories for free with a trial subscription. It's also going to give you free access to the entire library of Pro Clinic episodes, uncut videos, and other bonus content. Holy smokes, now's the time to check it all out. I really appreciate your support. It's what keeps me going over here in the podcast slash utility closet. So if you listen on Apple, boom, it's right there in your podcast player, or pop over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to sign up for free. 
Now you can find all of Dave's amazing content on his website, davemcleod.com, which will also link you to his YouTube and his Instagram pages, buy his books, watch his videos. It is all such good stuff. And lastly, just a huge thanks and appreciation to our show sponsors who have brought you this episode at zero cost. I'm talking about Fizzy Vantage and Kaya. Y'all are the best. Check your show notes for links and special discounts from those guys that are only available to struggle listeners. All right, y'all, that clips the anchors on this episode. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. Now, if you're a patron or subscriber, listen through the outro music here at the end, and that is when your bonus content will begin. And hey, if you want even more struggle content and a free sticker, what, what, free sticker time, sign up for the struggle newsletter. You can just pop over to the struggleclimbingshow.com, fill in your email address. I only send out like one or two emails a month, and it has some cool stuff and secret deals in there. So if you like cool stuff and secret deals, then check it out. Hey, did you know that The Struggle is carbon neutral in partnership with the Honold Foundation? Well, they are doing amazing work to bring clean energy to communities around the world. You can get inspired by their latest grant recipients over at honoldfoundation.org. Toss them some love if you can. They are truly doing impactful work out there. And lastly, The Struggle is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. I hope your training and climbing are going great. And if you are struggling out there, like I am struggling out here, well, just remember, the struggle makes us stronger. See you soon.